Welcome to episode 172 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? And how is DC since I saw you 24 hours ago? DC is cold. It's I believe like it. In the low 30s right now. So um, it is colder since you left. I mean, you took all the warmth and sunshine with you. It is kind it was of that warm, warm here. It wasn't that warm while you were here, so it was a marginal amount of sunshine that you departed <laughs> with. But, you know, it was something. Um, but, yeah, marginal, it was very nice. Marginal amount of sunshine should be the name of my memoir. I think that's right. Yeah. It's what I bring to the table. Yeah. You know, within <laughs> the margin of error. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a marginal amount. Not bunch. Not some. Hopefully more than you had before. Go with that. So it was very, yeah, it was very nice seeing you on uh, over here in DC. It was a nice sort of surprise visit there, and we enjoyed periscoping uh, the final, which hopefully a bunch of you were able to tune into uh, the men's World Tour finals final. Uh, it's so stupid having to say final twice in that sentence, but uh, the final match between Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic would determine the year number one. We, you know, did our best Andy Roddick and broadcast the first set at least of it anyway on periscope. So that was fun. And would be something I would be open for doing again if we ever are in a setting where we're both together, not on site at a tournament, which is going to be rare. Very rare. So <laughs> during an important tournament. Or we could do it for some unimportant match, I guess, also. Um, but it was an important match because Andy Murray won it, and he is now year-end number one. Uh, he won the match pretty easily, 3-6-4, uh, six, six, I believe. Djokovic made a little bit of a push in the second set, but it was kind of over. And Djokovic afterwards was saying, like, oh, yeah, I never really thought I would win that match. Which is not very Djokovician in terms of because he wins everything. Not that he's always like you know this pillar of confidence per se, but he just is not usually um, a pessimist either. No, he's not a pessimist. But Novak has always been, you know, all the Serbs really, but particularly Novak has always been very much about you know the fatalis the fatalism. Like oh, it wasn't meant to be. It just wasn't my day. Like the stars just weren't aligned. Like you see that. Very much like through the course of like some of his tougher matches, you know, even like yeah. if you think about the forehand heard around the world, it's because he was just over it. He was like, well, today is <laughs> not my day. And he hits that forehand against Roger and comes back. But um, yeah, so it was weird. I mean, obviously, I didn't watch the second set, but watching the first set, there was just kind of a a sense of acceptance about Novak Djokovic, which was very weird. It was just it was it was. I think it was very sort of affirming for Andy Murray because he really did feel like the alpha out there, which in, in a way that I don't think he ever has yeah. before against a big four opponent. Um, well, because he hasn't played any other big four opponents since he sort of took command of the tour second half of this year. And so the question, I get, I'll get straight to the, the, the chase of this. We talked about the significance of Murray getting number one uh, for the first time back when he got it, at least temporarily last week. And so I don't think we need to go too much more into that. But just in terms of 2016, uh, in the player of the year debate, uh, one obvious answer would be that it's Murray because he's number one and he won the match to was, you know, a, head to, a heads up battle for the number one. But who would you say, Courtney, is the best men's player of 2016 or the oh. player of the year, as they say? It's it is. It's really a tricky tough. one. Yeah, you know. no, it's it's really tough. Uh, tough. My my gut says Novak Djokovic simply because when he was playing the way that he played for the first five and a half months of the season, it was unbelievable. And it was at a level that you just really couldn't believe in a lot of ways. And um, 
um, just felt completely dominant. Now, like, has he obviously replicated that since? No, he has not. Um, and, and that shift really, you know, went towards Andy, especially with Roger and Rafa kind of taking a step back as well and Stan being Stan and not really performing on a, a consistent level week in and week out. So the door was open for Andy, but he still only got it by just a hair, you know, came down to, to the final match. To me, I think that Andy did incredibly well to kind of like take advantage of the situation. Like I said, and I think I've said a gazillion times, there is no way in heck that I would have ever. And I'm saying this as a diehard OG Andy Murray fan. Um, never would have thought that Andy Murray could win 24 consecutive matches on the international level. I'm sorry, 250 level, um, let alone across every single level of, of, of tournament outside of the slams. That he was able to do that in the fall and really make that push, especially post Wimbledon, um, you know, at the Olympics and all that. And I saw that stat that if Andy, if the the point system had been the same this year for the Olympics as it was in London, that Andy would have clinched number one before the World Tour Finals or in the midst of the World Tour Finals, which is fair enough. There's a part of me that still thinks it's Novak simply for the ephemeral like idea that like I feel like Novak's the better tennis player, but. Obviously, as a WTA writer, there's absolutely no way that I would throw any shade towards what uh, Andy Murray has done, because at the end of the day, you beat who's a, uh, across the net from you. And if Novak sucked the second half of the season, that's on him. It is. And I think that's fair. And I, again, I will say we've said it, you know, it, I feel like I need to asterisk the suckage a little bit because I mean, his sucking would still be a career second half for so many other guys on paper. I mean, his, you know, making... Uh, winning can in the second half of the year, which we talk about being the Murray half of the year. Novak won Canada, made a U.S. Open final, semis of Shanghai, quarters of Paris, Bercy, and then finals of London. That's pretty I mean, good. That's like really good for an awful <laughs> half of the year. So, or by his standards, and I think he, you know, doesn't deny that. I think he says, you know, the last few months have been rough, and that's certainly true by his standards. I think I was really um, uh, impressed. I think it's a fair word. I'm not, not surprised, but impressed that Andy. Um, went out of his way to mention uh, during the trophy ceremony that Novak had had a great year because earlier this year he had held all four Grand Slams at once. Which yeah, no he, gave, got, he which, gave the yeah. Novak Slam some credence, some some, yeah. some love, which nobody talked about when Novak won the French Open. Everybody said, oh, that was about the career Grand Slam. But again, okay. Novak completed the Serena Slam. Yeah, people talked about it some. And yeah, he did what Serena's done twice, but no guy has done it in forever. I think since since Rod Laver did the traditional calendar slam, I believe. I don't think anybody done it non-calendar. So that was a hugely impressive thing. And just on the merits of that, achieving half of that feat within 2016, that's a fair reason to vote for Novak Djokovic, I think. I think you could have said that he wrapped it up regardless of what happened right, the second in half Paris. of the year, just, just by that. And also his first half of the year was against much tougher opposition than what Andy did, essentially equaling it in the second half. I mean, in the first half of the year, Novak beat Rafa in Doha, um, Federer and Murray in Australia. Uh, he won Indian Wells. He won Miami. Uh, he beat Murray again in Madrid. Um, he he lost to Rome in the Rome final, but that was he was so that was a fatigue asterisk match after he played that late night session and Murray got the really easy day session against Puy. So that one I almost make. I almost want to toss that one out. And then in uh, in Paris, he beat Murray again and, you know, did exercised all the demons and whatnot in that in that tournament. So I think that I think that 
I feel like you kind of have. Well, I don't know. I I I am, I am torn. I, I can make a case. I can, I can make a case. So for, I can make a case for either of them, though. I mean, I really can. Yeah, and no, I, I think there. I think there are good cases to be made for either of them. Recency bias, obviously, is is you know a, a real thing. And but it also is true that Andy, you know, did demolish Novak. Although Andy had gotten demolished by Novak earlier in the year too. So I don't know, you guys. I mean, <laughs> I think Olympics not counting in rankings is a valid point for sure. Um, but yeah, they're very, very similar years and very sort of very symmetrical in it, how, if you look at the, I did like an emoji tweet as per always of like the year in 2016 in men's tennis. And like, it basically is a bunch of Serbian flags at the beginning and then a slight, you know, do si of the two in the middle and then all British flags at the end. And it's just, it, it's just, it was really, really even. And I think that it's, I'll, you know, it's a tie. They're both swell. I'll, yeah, they're, I'll, I'll split my vote. They're both super swell. I The analogy, and it's not an analogy because this is it. In a year of false equivalencies, this is a false analogy in a lot of ways, but it is somewhat illustrative as just like a analytical tool. But if you look at the, at the, at the WTA, like let's assume that Serena actually wins that French Open final. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's assume the rest of the year is what it is. Um in terms of like, you know, Angie finishes with two majors, um, Serena finishes with two majors, Angie gets a silver medal at the Olympics, Serena crashes out, uh, Serena shuts her season down after the US Open, Angie goes on to make the, the World Tour final finals. All these sorts of things. So everything remains the same except for the fact that, that Serena wins that the one French. match, yeah. When you sit down and you say who is the player of the year? I think it really comes down to like, you know, that there's one player like with Serena. I know that when she plays her best, she's the best player, not just like of, on the current tour, but ever, you know, yeah. and, and there's a part of that that colors my. Um, that was a parenthetical hot take, I feel like. But yeah, go for it. Oh, fair enough. Uh, sure. But but there's a part of that that informs my opinion of it, of just like, well, I just, you know, at my gut, I just kind of feel like Serena's the better player. Right. In the same way with Novak versus Andy, I feel like in my gut, Novak is the better tennis player. But at the end of the day, one other player, you know, tallies the, the you know, equi- equivalent numbers on some level. Right. I mean, Angie would probably have a better argument, but the fact that she played more tournaments, she was making, you know, you know, semifinals and finals at a better clip than than Serena was, et cetera, et cetera. You have to tip your cap to that. And and I do, and I will say, and people can take this with a grain of salt because I do work for the tour, but I do think that what you do on the tour level matters and it can't just be about, you know, what you do at the slams because that's two weeks. The tour is week in, week out. What Andy was able to do, you know, from Wimbledon on is pretty darn impressive. You know, you set aside the U.S. Open. Outside of that, outside of that, like, yeah, I mean, Novak was incredible. Obviously, tour on the tour and, and at the slams, like for the first six months of the season, but all that is to say, I don't know. They're both really swell. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you guys, you know, tweet Way us. Weigh in, with, man. Please. Yeah, tweet us with team, a hashtag, you know. Set us right. Team Novak, hashtag Team Andy, and, and we'll, we'll let it go. Yeah, but Andy Murray is the, the year end number one. Um, one thing I will say, um, which, I, which I got sort of annoyed by, and we'll talk, we'll, you know, when we get the Dumbledore episode up, hopefully soon, um, we'll, you know, mention Jamie too, obviously. There was a lot of over-conflating that Jamie finished year number one. He really didn't. <laughs> I mean, that was a stretch. He finished, he was in the team that had the year number one ranking, which is something that never gets talked about. Like, I've never heard anyone talk about that 
thing before. And it wasn't like he shared it with Bruno Suarez, even though Bruno Suarez has more points than him. And the actual year in number one in the ranking, I think, is Nicholas Mahout. Yeah, so I got anyway, really I just thought that was. I thought that. I thought that was. There was a lot of. I think like maybe intentional or unintentional obfuscation or equivalencing with that. I was I just, really confused because yeah. I thought that Jamie had clinched, like you know, as somebody who was paying attention to it, like you know, kind of dipping in, dipping out. I thought that Jamie was number one, and then ATP Media Info tweeted like, "Congrats to Nicholas Mahu who like clinches the year in number one." And I got really, really confused. Yeah. Whatever. Everybody's a number one, Ben. Everyone's all... great. Um, everyone's a number one in my heart, and that's all that matters. That's sweet. <laughs> um, speaking of things that have winners that are debatable, that's uh, not a great segue, but briefly we should acknowledge that Davis Cup is happening. It is the final thing of the year. Davis Cup will happen after Thanksgiving um, this year. Uh, I'll be down in, in Florida, so I'm not going to get to watch pretty much any of it, I don't think. Uh, but what do you, I mean, Courtney, what do you, is it, is this Davis Cup final? I don't know. I think it's cool. I think if, if Juan Martin Del Potro gets to win the Davis Cup, I think that's a nice, you know, feather in his cap for his amazing comeback year. And, and alternately, if, if Chilich and Karlovich win it too, I think they both had solid enough years that could deserve a little feather in them. So I think, yeah. it's, I think, I think it's a much better final than Britain, Belgium was when I thought the Belgium had no business. Being oh, that's whatsoever. for sure. That's for yeah. sure. I will make a slight confession though. Okay. I genuinely thought Britain was in the final. And I think <laughs> that like the last week, because it kept like, I, I kept seeing tweets and like whatever about like Argentina, Croatia in the final. Like I kept Googling it and double checking to make sure they weren't talking about like world group two or like something that I wasn't, I was like, wait, when did Great Britain lose? So, yeah, all that is to say, I don't have a ton to say about this Davis Cup final because obviously I was not paying attention really, really closely. I think that it's as relevant as what Juan Martin Del Potro does. Um, I think that with his season and what he was able to do and, and just the comeback effort and everything that, you know, if he were to finish things off with with the Davis Cup, you know, title, which he's been unable to, do, to, to bring back to Argentina um, in his career... I think that would be amazing and would be kind of like a perfect coda on the ATP season. If Croatia wins, great. I mean, obviously, Cilic and Karlovic are, are awesome and have had great seasons themselves. But I, I think that the interest and the resonance of, of the result is really going to turn on what Delpo does. I agree. Delpo is the protagonist of it. And it should be, it should be cool. I mean, Argentina has ne- famously never won Davis Cup, and they're by far the most outlying, you know, for a country that's been a perennial perennially relevant country and sort of has a, has a unique flavor in the competition uh, for them to get that final, to get that, you know, out, whatever the Spanish word for albatross is off their back, I think would be pretty, pretty overdue and deserved. And they, they're sort of like the Chicago Cubs of uh, Davis True. Cup, yeah. maybe. Let's go with that. Right down to so, the blue. Yeah. So they can be, we can talk about that as, you know, in a series of unlikely November victories, Argentina <laughs> and Davis Cup. Too uh, too, always it will never not there will not never be cool, enough time man. um okay let's let's focus on the positive though courtney it is thanksgiving coming up this week we're thankful for stuff we've done this on the show before in past years but let's go through some things you know go around our virtual tennis table full of our favorite thanksgiving dishes you know cranberry sauce still in can shape the best things like that it's, it's essential um what are you what are you thankful for you can take this any direction you want. We'll go back and forth with some of these 
about our thankfulness for things in our tennis lives. Yeah, I mean, let's not lie. 2016 was kind of a shithole of a year. (laughs) Um, Let's not pretend otherwise and try and slap lipstick on a pig. But let's also, you know, set that aside and try and find those glimmers of goodness that were in this otherwise horrid and forgettable uh, uh, year. Um, So I'm going to start where everything started in the beginning. I will be, I am and hope to be incredibly thankful for in 2017 as well as I was in 2016 for Anjali Kerber. I think that not just for what she was able to do in terms of her, you know, winning two slams or whatever, but look, let's not pretend that it hasn't been a recurring theme amongst uh, the WTA slam champions outside of Serena, that they win the big one and they slump forever and it's hard for them to get things back together. So for Angie Kerber to win and to back it up as, as well as she did, I think that was an incredible uh, statement about her, but also it made my life as a person who writes about the WTA for the WTA so much easier and so much more joyful throughout the year to be able to point to a champion who was kind of like bringing it year in, uh, week in, week out, um, and fully committing to a full schedule, all that sort of stuff. It was great. And she's also an incredibly nice person. I love Angie. She's just good peeps. So that was that was really cool what she did this season. Uh, my sort of main protagonist on court one, similar to that, would be about Del Potro, we just mentioned. But I think it's so nice and so something we should not take for granted, the fact that Juan Martin Del Potro did get this somewhat fairy ish comeback this year. Not complete, full-blown fairy tale. didn't win the U.S. Open or Olympic gold. But he came close enough to both, and he had this like really, really legit, relevant run in in the game and it's something that i think we had no right to expect would ever happen again after how uh dismal often his injury prognoses had seemed uh, with his both wrists at different times and so for him to come back and do that and the sort of joy and you know pureness of that moment and the u.s open when he lost to Vavrinka and like the crowd cheering for him at like whatever past midnight hour it was when the stadium wasn't very empty, but everyone who, sorry, when the stadium was pretty empty, but everyone who was there was just going so loud. That was like, that was great. So in terms of on-court things, that's my main, main one, Juan Martin Del Potro coming back because we did not have any reason to uh, really be optimistic for that. So vamos, uh, Juan, hope you stick around for a while. Even if he doesn't though, even if... You know, he. this was it. It was still worth having, selfishly, just this great year with him. So I love yay. how, like, your yay. thankful thing is still, like, a very melancholy, like, if this is the only <laughs> dance we had, it was worth it, like, sort right? of thing. Better, uh, to de- better to have Delpoed and lost than never to have Delpoed at all. Dude, on a t-shirt. Right? And a bumper sticker. <laughs> and maybe tattooing it on my inner forearm. Tremendous. Um, the other thing that I will be uh, incredibly grateful for, Monica Puig. Um, her two weeks, or sorry, her single week in... Okay, this is why I'm going to say Monica Puig. Because we're used to, like, incredibly unexpected things happening, particularly on the women's tour. It's, it's all part of it, you know, uh, always full of, of surprises and anything is possible. I think what Monica Puig did in Rio kind of, like, rewrote that for me. Like this, that this was beyond surprising, you know, like Mary Bertoli. It was so improbable. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was just so improbable. If you were to sit down 
and and before the tournament and say, please list to me the 20 people, not even in, in order, just 20 people that you think could win the gold medal here. All due respect to Monica, and I'm sorry, I never would have put her on that list. And, you know, you go back to like the big surprising champions that we've seen in tennis the last like five years, right? Like Marion Bartoli winning, you know, Wimbledon or I don't know of... Schiavone. Schiavone, yeah. Winning the French Open, Stozer winning the US Open the way that she did, whatever. I just, I don't even put any of those near what, what Puig did and um, just the way that she did it and the poise with which she played. That was a really, truly, like even personally for me, like inspiring week of watching somebody like totally like Eminem, like, you know, lose yourself, <laughs> embrace the moment, like, fuck it, like I'm going to do it. Uh, sort of thing. It was it was really really cool to see, and I'm I'm really really happy for her. So, yes, thankful for Pika Power. The Monica I'm thankful for is Monica Nicolescu, because Monica Nicolescu Obs. just being herself, I think, is a radiating beam of light and joy and and you know possibility in this world <laughs> that someone can go out there with her game and you know stomp Petra Kvitova in the Luxembourg final. And just be delightful afterwards, and and just and just her sort of positivity and her what she brings on court just it it reminds me every time I watch her why I like tennis because you can do that and you know hit her jumpy loopy forehand slices that no coach would ever let a kid hit more than once <laughs> and be a successful pro and you can sort of be your own sort of uh, you know I don't know butterfly and do what you want and and no one can stop you in tennis if it works and and she makes it work and so i think her sort of her spirit in that honorable mention in the the spirit category to uh barbara stritzova who was the clincher in the fed cup final um and has her own sort of just sort of you know hers is more hers is more about attitude i mean her game is pretty cool too not quite as unique as monica's but both of them just sort of captured this uh this joyfulness about tennis that I really, uh, that really resonates with me. So I'm thankful, thankful for them and glad they both had uh, great finishes to their respective years. Yeah. I mean, off of that, and I will say just as a, a caveat before I continue talking, Ben and I have decided to record this podcast like 15 minutes ago. And in the time leading up to that 15 minutes, I've had about four glasses of wine and I watched and I'm in the midst of rewatching a, a, a movie that I'm going to talk about later, which is a very emotional one. So I'm like a raw nerve at the moment if I wasn't one even before I cracked open a bottle of wine or whatever. But anyways, I'm very thankful going off of what Ben was saying about Nicolescu and Stritzova for my job. Like I mm, this mm-hmm. year was the first uh, full season that I've I've worked for the WTA and in this roles as, as WTA insider and whatever. And we kind of went into it with a vague idea of what we wanted to do in terms of like really focusing on forehands and backhands, you know, covering the sport the way that we thought that it, it, it should be covered, you know, kind of straying away from, you know, gossip or fashion or all the other, you know, 5,000 reasons why sometimes women's tennis is covered um, and all that. And in a season that saw, you know, Serena Williams play fairly minimally, um, just seven, seven events, uh, Marie Sharapova get taken off the board fairly early by March. Uh, Victoria Azarenka also taken off the board uh, mid-season. Um, it was a genuine joy, and I really, really did like really love my job. Just spending time for like with like the top like fifteen girls um, throughout the year, and 
and you know you you are there every week they kind of get to know you you kind of have these weird inside jokes um there's a familiarity between the two of you um that that definitely helps things but but yeah the the year was was way cooler um than i thought it was even going to be when i took the job um and that really i mean you know shout out to to like you know Angie Kerber Agar Advanska, Simona Halep, Garbina Muguruza, you know, Carolina Pliskova, Madison Keys, you know, the whole lot. They were just all tremendously lovely. And and I will, to kind of hammer that home, kind of tell one story that always still cracks me up, is that uh, it was after, obviously, Wuhan, I was in Beijing, and um, Petra Kvitova, who was in the hunt, outside chance of, of getting a spot in Singapore, was still playing and, and it was a late night match and she had finished. And as is the case, usually with those players, especially because the next day she was going to be playing Madison Keys. I was like, sorry, I do. I do need to talk to her is what I told told comms. So I needed uh, communications, the WTA communication. So I did need to sit down and talk to her. So Petra rolls up, you know, with her bat with her bag still on her back. Don't think she hit the locker room. I think she was still like sweaty from after the match. And she like walks up and she's like, you again. I was like, yeah, you know. Petra, you know, like one of the perks that I, that I, that I signed up for when I took this job was that I get to talk to you whenever I want. And so this is one of those times, you know, kind of being jokey and like whatever. And Petra puts down her big red Wilson bag and, and she's like, oh, what a privilege. <laughs> and it was like so sarcastic and it was like, and I just could not stop laughing and it was just great and wonderful. And she was like so kind about it. Uh, cause I know that late night press conferences are not the, 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 uh, the thing that everybody likes. So, so yeah, but that's a little bit of insight of like what my day to day job is like, but, the, but these girls like made it really, really cool. And, um, and yeah, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. They were, they were all really, really great. Yeah, no, mine, mine is mine. One of mine was going to be similar to just having this job my job didn't change. hasn't changed really that much, um, per se in the last five years or so, since I've been doing this more full time. Um, or I guess five and a half or whatever, however you want to measure it. But, uh, it's been, it's been continually cool to get to do this, this job and travel around. And I'm, although we, you know, this, this podcast often contains a lot of our sort of, uh, grumblings about, you know, minor creature comfort inconveniences along the way, uh, you know, behind the scenes struggles or difficulties we face. It's still a very, very cool thing that we get to do that a lot of people would love to get the chance to do. And I try to remain, as conscious and uh, as of uh, non-complacent and, and grateful of that as I, of that status as I can be, and and all on those lines, uh, thanks, th- great, very grateful that this year we had all the Kickstarter support from so many of you guys uh, on this show, which made doing this show continuing much more possible and expanding it and do, getting to do some cool new things, some of which are still to come uh, in this final breaths of 2016. And including lots of postcards, I'll be doing lots of postcards over Thanksgiving break. So many gave postcards. Cor- gave Courtney a, uh, a fraction of my remaining stack to do uh, while she was here. Uh, so yeah, so lots more of that coming. But thank you guys again for all your support of that. Very very thankful for you keeping us keeping us going, keeping NCR going. Exactly. No, the support is what makes it good and worth it, and making you feel like you're not like sitting in your basement like talking into a microphone with nobody listening about and nobody caring about what you say so all of your notes every single email every single facebook message post that you guys send like we read them yeah we are and, oh, and, them. Also, and also on the last episode we got much more feedback than usual unsurprisingly uh, <laughs> with our topic so thank you guys everyone who sent those in 
Thank if you, you haven't for heard making from us my directly. tears worth it. Um, yeah. But no, it's absolutely true. <laughs> like, no, I mean, it, it's just nice. You know, I mean, like I always say that, you know, everybody asks me, like, how did you get into tennis and, and like tennis writing and like tennis blogging? And how did you get the job that you have? And I'm like, honestly, it all started because I did not have anybody in my real life to talk to about this sport. And, and I was, you know, falling back in love with it. And I had all these ideas and all of these sarcastic, catty, jokey, impassioned reactions to what I was seeing. And I had nobody in my actual real life to talk to about it. And so that's when I started blogging. And through blogging, I found a community of people who thought about tennis in the same way I did, which is that it's like, it's funny. And like, you know, we can laugh about it and let's not take it too seriously. And in that, you know, I found people to like podcast with and, you know, talk through our feelings every single week. And then through that, I eventually like quit my job and got picked up and had to, I mean, it's, it's so much. And even when I was in DC, we, you know, we met up for, for drinks and dinner with, um, with Anna Mitrich and Amy Featheroff and Lindsay Gibbs and, it was great, you know, just to like talk to people. And these are people who are not in my real life. They are, they are virtual friends outside of Ben. I mean, Ben's obviously in my real life, but <laughs> can't um, but, get enough of me. But even nine, you know, a lot of, the, you know, 30% of the time you're a virtual friend. Like we, yeah. we don't see each other, you know? So, um, you know, that's what it's all about is being able to like share the experience of being like a tennis fan with other people, regardless of where, where they live. And so, all of your messages throughout the year and, and, and the support on Kickstarter has been incredibly humbling. And, um, and then, yeah, just based off of last week's episode, just, I've read every single one of your emails. They've been so kind and, um, really, really thoughtful and very moving. So, um, Hey, that, that's what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a community, right? So I'm thankful yeah. for the NCR community. Yeah, no. And I always think with tennis people, NCR particularly, obviously we speak a certain dialect of this, Maybe, but I always just feel like when I ever I meet with tennis people, especially like not at a tennis event, like in the wild, it's always like meeting someone else from this like isolated tribe who can yeah. speak the same language you can. And some, we have to try our hardest to like preserve this possibly dying language, you know, keep it there for posterity and keep the flame alive and keep the culture of it growing and vibrant. I took a lot of linguistics in college. I don't think many people think about it that way. Yeah, but it's been it's been very cool. And especially sort of in this current political, you know, what is the word reckoning or, you know, geopolitical reckoning that the world is doing and existential crises. I think it's been very cool to know that tennis, that tennis has been the lens to get to meet this sort of world, this cross section of the world and all sorts of people who've been brought together by this diverse geographically, culturally, yeah, totally. religious, everything. I feel like, you know, without it's given me a much more uh, holistic picture of the world. And I think a lot of the problems, quote unquote, on all sides of the aisle and sort of the, you know, being surprised by, by numbers and different results around the world. It's just people not getting out of their own, their own lanes. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing. And and tennis, and tennis does that. I mean, it's obviously a a certain type of lane. It's not everybody in it, but it's something. But, you know, I, I will counter that a little bit because I will say that like, to the extent that there is a pretty, well, at least in my experience, the tennis bubble is a diverse and really unique one. As much as like the sport gets this reputation of being country club and white and hoity-toity and bougie and un- upper class, my experience within tennis has been I like the actual business of it as well as the people and the fans that I consider to be voices within the sport. Um has not been that. You yeah, know? no, I, I mean, totally agree. You know, like even like my, as people know who follow us on Twitter, like my 
crew, my gang on, you know, on the road is like Carol Bouchard from France, like Reem Aboulil in the Middle East, like Nick McCarville, um, Ben, Tamini Carriol, like these, these are the people that I interact with like regularly. And the, those are the people that when I think about tennis, like those are the faces that I see. Similarly, when I have met fans and when I have like hung out with them on extended levels, whether it be in Cincinnati or New York or like wherever, it's a diverse crew of people. Like it's it really not, the, is. it's not the people that, you know, most w- would think are tennis fans. Like, you know, everyone from across every racial, you know, uh, uh, category, every, you know, social economic status, every racial status, whatever, like it, orientation, it's, yeah, yeah, orientation, everything. all of it. And that's, you know, if tennis wasn't that, if I had gone into this and jumped into this back in like 2006, seven or eight or whatever, and realized that it was literally just a bunch of old white guys, like talking about like their love for the one handed backhand, I would have been out of here. Like, immediately like that would have never been something that like you know kind of uh, attracted me but it was the fact that there was this kind of different side of it of the sport and the different face of the sport that maybe wasn't being written about or being recognized by what were the institutional you know forces before but i feel like nowadays especially with social media like there are so many like um outlets for everyone and I take great pride in that. And that's the tennis that I that I see and that I recognize as being like my tennis. It reminds me a little bit of like, not to get all political again, but like I had uh, drinks with um, a really good friend before I took off to Florida last week. And uh, we were watching like Lemonade, the movie, the Beyonce movie. And we mm-hmm. were, had obviously spent most of the night talking about the election and everything. And we were kind of both breaking down in tears because we were like watching towards the end there's like a few videos that are just like very candid moments of like Beyonce and her family and like you know families across like America and we're both like that's our America we don't we're not familiar with the America that everybody seems to be focused on right now like that's our America and that's the same way that I feel like with tennis is that and this job and you know has really given me an opportunity to see is that there is a specific like that's my tennis world <laughs> that is very like that means a lot to me and so thank you guys for being a part of it thank you very much is that a good place to end the thanks you think sure can do yeah well no, right. no no i have one more but continue okay. so do one if you have one and then i'll um finish up corny why don't i leave you one last thankfulness before we wrap this segment up Sure, put me on the spot. Um, and it's so self-serving, too, as you're about to find <laughs> put out. Put me on the spot just because you asked for it. Go yeah, ahead. exactly. <laughs> um, but no, I, I genuinely in 2016 have to be very thankful to Ben uh, specifically oh, yeah. for, for everything that he did in 2016, not just for the podcast in terms of like really, really like carrying the load um, because there are times where I can't be a part of it just because of my schedule or because of conflicts of interest or things like that. Um, and he's really had to carry it forward, which is great, but also just from a personal level, like I, 2016 has been rough and like my dog died and this whole Trump thing, but like Ben's always been like weirdly, like right there for (laughs) each one of those tragedies, which I don't mean to be in a weird way, but I'm happy to be in the passenger seat of whatever potholes you hit. Exactly. Yeah. So like, yeah, like my dog passed away when I was in Indian Wells and Ben was there. And even that night, like we just kind of like joked around and it was like a what I needed to get out of my headspace. And then even now, like when I 
flew last week to, uh, to Florida for some WTA meetings. I could have flown back to California, but I thought, you know what? I would like to like go see my friend up in Washington, DC and just like have some normalcy and be able to like talk and be comfortable because I'm very comfortable around Ben. So, um, yeah, so it was like really nice. And so he's been all very supportive and kind of a dick sometimes too, but you know, you guys know Ben, but par for general, the course. yeah, par but... for the course, but generally speaking, like he's been absolutely a rock this entire year. So I, I genuinely appreciate you, Ben. Oh, and court, and you were delight to have here also, obviously, and sleeping a as well. Cool. No, and I know just because I was gonna say like <laughs> the amount of like low maintenance. If someone like I, some, I think someone, I think like my mom asked as she was leaving, like, oh, so what did you and Courtney do while she was here? And we went to the White House. That was like one thing I could point to. And then I was like, and then we just sort of, you know, like sat around and. It was a lot of like, and, wanted, and then we were like, you know, I would go take a nap, and she would stare at her phone for three hours, and then we sort of <laughs> resume sitting around. Then, it was kind of mortifying because yeah. I was sleeping on Ben's couch. It was kind of mortifying because he would go and take these naps, and then you would come out, and I knew it too. I was like, oh my god, I am in the exact same position as I was two hours ago, <laughs> like lying on this couch, like staring at my phone. And I did some things between then, but, like, I was like, oh, this is really bad. Sure yeah, you did. Sure you did. A few yeah. things. A few things. Like, I went up and got to, went to the restroom. But, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, I mean, that's one of those, you know, get you guys a friend like Ben. Like, you know, like, just, like, I knew that when I went to, like, D.C. that, and when I decided to go up to D.C. that it wasn't going to be, I don't know. A production. You, you, yeah, you know me. I know yeah. you. We've gone through enough together on the road. Like, I was like, uh, this is like nothing. Um, but just to be like, just that Ben felt free to be like, I'm going to go take a nap. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> like, you don't need to entertain me. It's fine. Um, so it was great. So, and, you, and I know that, and I know, you know, that you need, you know, you like having time for yeah. yourself and your, your thoughts and you wouldn't want to do anything even if I had suggested it. So this is I true. Can read you, I can read you pretty well. Yes, you can. After, after five something years. And hopefully you guys can as well after listening to us for, 200 plus episodes even though this is number 172 we're like at like 214 or something on the real clock but thank you guys very much for joining us once again if you want to follow along when you're not listening you can do so by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can also follow along with us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis then it's emails uh no challenges remaining at gmail.com uh like we said we're doing you know, more Kickstarter stuff. Uh, Courtney has a stack of postcards now as well. We're getting more and more of those wrapped up. So keep your eye on your mailbox and know that if it hasn't come yet, um, it still is on the way, hopefully coming to you as soon as possible. Uh, executive producers of No Challenge Remaining are Pancha Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tao Woolley. And they, like everyone doing this out of order, but they, like everybody else, can subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us reviews there and any other podcasting platform of your choice. And we appreciate it all that tell your friends and family over thanksgiving dinner things get really awkward you know like there's some you know blow up at the thanksgiving dinner table just be like hey guys hey hey hey," and just like tell them to shut up and just like take out your phone and like play ncr on your speaker and that won't work but it's at least something they won't see coming it'll exactly it'll shock them just be like "Hey, hey hey hold up you guys did you hear the last episode of ncr let's talk about that and then yeah. you can like deconstruct it and diffuse the situation. We, start we are, start, we, start are agents Murray of peace. Yeah. we are agents of peace. Kind of. I don't know. Maybe we're start, not. We'll start debating Murray Djokovic instead of whatever else you're talking about. True. I'm sure, I'm sure it's a more constructive topic. I mean, it could also get bloody. You never know. But it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a thought. 
Spare the turkey. <laughs> um, and with that, Courtney, I know you, you alluded to it earlier, uh, your rave about this movie. Tell yeah. us about this movie and why it's so wonderful. Yeah, so I, I kind of spoiled this uh, rave session weird rave session but uh, i spoiled this rave on our weekend um periscope which we did as ben mentioned during the uh, atb finals um but yes the best movie that i saw in 2016 and i'm pretty sure i can you know throw this down even with like a month and a half to go is kubo and the two strings and it's an uh an animated stop stop animation movie that that came out i think over the summer by the same studio that put out Coraline. So if you go, if you guys saw Coraline, it's kind of the same thing. It's rated PG. Coraline was weird. Poor, yeah. Coraline's super, super weird. So Kubo is less weird. It's it's okay. much more straightforward in terms of a linear storyline. But it's about a boy named Kubo. Um, and uh, it, 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 it draws a lot on kind of Japanese uh, mythology, cap- Japanese mysticism. In fact, like Kubo and his mother... Their kind of like super power is, is origami. Like they can make, you know, paper kind of do whatever they want it to do, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's voiced by uh, Charlize Theron is one of the voices. Um, Matthew McConaughey is one of the voices. Uh, Rooney Mara. Uh, I think Nick, I, I don't think Nick Rothman's in it. But anyways, it's great. I don't want to give too much away, but it is the most like moving, just best movie that I saw in 2016. Um, and I feel like it's been like overlooked on a fairly, really major way. So I kind of wanted to give it a shout out. So if you're, you know, watching, looking for something to watch over the, over the holidays, don't rent this and watch this with your kids or your nephews or nieces. It's like really gut wrenching. Like I was in tears within the first five minutes, but, um, if you're looking for something that's just like kind of really interesting and very different, definitely pick up Kubo and the two strings. And actually, I like went out of my way to buy like the soundtrack on vinyl because it's so amazing. Um, Cause there's a lot of kind of like Japanese Asian sounding like guitar and the cover of um, the Beatles while my guitar gently weeps is really, really phenomenal. So Kubo and the two strings. Yeah. Kubo and the two strings. Check it out. It's, it's really phenomenal. That's pretty cool. Oops. The recording shorted out just as Ben was starting his rant, which was about Tila Tequila being a Nazi. I think grossness of all that just short-circuited his recorder. So we rejoin our recording later, once it recovered, already in progress. <laughs> I'm sorry, is King Arthur around? <laughs> Has he made his arrival? <laughs> Very regal, so I guess I'm being paged. So with that, um, we will talk to you guys later. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. We we'll gobble back to gobble. You after that uh, with more shows, big shows, special shows, Kickstartery shows. It'll be cool. Um, yeah, gobble don't, gobble indeed. Gobble gobble, Bye, and don't let anybody ever tell you that good cranberry jam doesn't come out of a can, right? And don't like try to present it. Don't people even who, like, try. That is absurd. Into, like, little chunks Ugh. or something. No, just oh. leave it. You know, it is a... It should the, fart coming out of the can. You <laughs> give people a knife. The, the, there are built-in ridges from the can to help guide your, your slicing. Ocean spray, cranberry jelly, leave it at that. Don't make your own. You're just being a hipster asshole to do it. Leave it alone.
And just like I feel like st- standing it on end, even it's just sort of like a monument to American. <laughs> it is achievement. Like yes, it, and into American food manufacturing, people decry and be like, "Oh, it's so art- so artificial," but it's also like how Delicious. Americans don't starve, and it's just you know how we how we do things and ingenuity. You know, you say corruption, I say ingenuity. We'll meet somewhere in the middle and eat <laughs> and make peace with ourselves. Tremendous over tables of communal cornucopia goodness. This got weird. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Talk.